The town of Olathe in eastern Kansas is over 400 miles from Holcomb. It's quite literally on the opposite end of the state. On the morning of Saturday, November 14, 1959, Richard Eugene Hickok met up with his friend Perry Edward Smith, who had been released on parole a few months prior. Dick was in prison when he heard from his cellmate Floyd Wells, a former employee of Herb Clutter's at River Valley Farm, that Herb kept $10,000 in cash in a safe in his house at all times. Dick was a dreamer, and it had gotten him in trouble many times in his life. He married young and had been divorced with a couple of kids and was in and out of jail throughout his 20s. Perry and Dick first met in the Kansas State Penitentiary in Lansing, Kansas. They were both now out on parole and Hickok wrote to Smith, imploring him to violate his probation by returning to Kansas to assist Hickok with a robbery he'd been planning at the clutter house. So on that morning, they began a road trip together that would end late that night on the outskirts of Holcomb with a home invasion, a robbery, and murder, taking the lives of two-thirds of the members of a family. I'm Chad Mortensen, and you're listening to Saints and Sinners, True Crime in the History of the West. This is the story of Truman Capote and the Clutter Family Murders, Part 2, the night that changed the world of true crime forever. Herb Clutter normally got out of bed around 6.30 a.m. most mornings to begin milking cows with hired hand Vic Ursic and to attend to his daily responsibilities as the master of River Valley Farm. But on Saturday, November 14, 1959, the last full day of his life, he slept in a bit. The night before, Friday the 13th, he and his wife Bonnie had attended a production of Tom Sawyer at Holcomb High School where his daughter Nancy had played the part of Becky Thatcher. He was out later than he normally would have been, even for a Friday night. After the play, Nancy had asked if she could drive into Garden City, the county seat of Finney County with her boyfriend, Bobby Rupp, for a special Friday the 13th movie marathon that was being held at the State Theater. The event started at 11.30 p.m., and her normal curfew, as well as the curfew of her brother Kenyon, was 10 p.m. on school nights and midnight on the weekends. Herb had a kind heart, but he rarely wavered with any of the rules he and Bonnie set for the children. That night, however, he decided to let Nancy go. He was so proud of her for how well she had done in the play and felt like this one time he would relax the rules a bit. Nancy didn't return home until about 2 a.m. and he waited up for her to make sure she returned home safely. He had a conversation with her before bed, urging her to slow things down with Bobby Rupp, and that maybe she shouldn't be going steady with anyone at the young age of 16. On Saturday the 14th, Herb got out of bed nearly an hour later than he normally did and got dressed and ready for the day. He didn't have to worry about waking his wife Bonnie as he slept alone in the master bedroom on the main floor of the house. Bonnie had decided several months prior to sleep in one of the three bedrooms on the second floor of the house. Kenyon and Nancy each had their own room on the second floor as well. Herb designed the house himself and built it in 1948 for $40,000. By 1959, the house was worth about 60,000. It had four bedrooms 
and two and a half bathrooms, which was definitely a rarity in those days in Kansas, where many homesteads still had outhouses. With three bedrooms upstairs and a master bedroom on the main floor, the basement was essentially a recreation room with a ping pong table, a couch, and space to socialize. Both Kenyon and Nancy had occasions in which they invited several friends over and they were generally relegated to the basement, where they could talk loud and have fun without bothering their parents. Next to this recreation room in the basement was the furnace room, a room where the most important piece of physical evidence in this case would be left behind, the night of the murders. As I stated in part one, years later, a film crew led by director Richard Brooks would set up in that house and film scenes where the murders themselves had taken place, including some in the basement. Let's talk more about Herb. He was not as rich as the richest man in Holcomb, Mr. Taylor Jones, a neighboring rancher. He was, however, the community's most widely known citizen, prominent both in Holcomb and in Garden City, where he had headed the building committee for the newly completed First Methodist Church, an $800,000 edifice. His funeral would be held at that church in four days. Thousands would attend. He was currently chairman of the board of the Garden City Co-op Equity Exchange, and his name was everywhere respectfully recognized among Midwestern agriculturalists, as it was in certain Washington offices, where he had been a member of the Federal Farm Credit Board during the early years of the Eisenhower administration. Herb walked outside that Saturday morning and surveyed the land while he ate his morning apple. He waved to Alfred's stock line, who was raking some hay inside the corral. Alfred was the only one of Herb's employees who lived on the farm. He lived in a small house with his wife and three kids less than 100 yards from the main clutter house. Beyond that, the closest neighbor to the clutters was over half a mile away. Herb owned about 800 acres of land by 1959 and farmed wheat and corn for the most part. He seldom encountered trespassers on his property, a mile from the highway, and arrived at only by obscure roads. It was not a place that strangers came upon by chance. That morning as he walked with his dog Teddy toward the Arkansas River, which literally flowed right through his property, he saw five men, most of whom were holding guns. He realized that they were hunting pheasants on his land. Normally hunters would pay the landowner for rights to do this, and they offered to pay Herb a fee, but one of the men, who was interviewed later after the murders, said that Herb was extremely pleasant to talk to and wouldn't allow them to pay anything. He told them to have a good day and a successful hunt. He walked back toward the main house and continued with his chores for the day. As he was sitting in his office a little bit later inside the main house doing some accounting, the phone rang. His office had a separate outside entrance on the north side of the house, and that was usually Herb's place of retreat, his man cave, so to speak. He heard his daughter Nancy answer the phone and say, Oh, hello, Mrs. Katz. How are you? Herb knew that Nancy was talking to the wife of Clarence Katz, another local rancher. Mrs. Katz had a daughter named Jolene who was wanting to make a cherry pie, and Nancy was a champion cherry pie maker, and had even won ribbons and local 4-H contests for her baking talents. Nancy had already committed herself that day to helping another neighbor's child, Roxy Lee Smith, with a trumpet solo that Roxy Lee planned to play at a school concert. 
She had also promised to run three complicated errands for her mother and had arranged to attend a 4-H meeting in Garden City later that day with her father. And then there was lunch to make, and after lunch, work to be done on the bridesmaids' dresses for Beverly's wedding. Beverly was Nancy's second to oldest sister, who at the age of 20 would be married in exactly a week at that same Methodist church in Garden City where the funeral would take place. As matters stood, there was no room for Jolene's cherry pie lesson unless something could be canceled. She went into Herb's office and he agreed that she didn't have to come with him to the 4-H meeting so she could help little Jolene. Nancy finished most of her errands that day and still had time to ride her favorite horse, Babe, whom she truly loved. Kenyon, the youngest of the four clutter children, had been tinkering on an old Model T that morning that the family had on the property. He, instead of Nancy, attended the 4-H meeting in Garden City with his father that afternoon, and now he was back home staining a mahogany hope chest for his sister Beverly's wedding, which was supposed to be a few weeks away in the month of December, but even the best laid plans would change, as they often do. Bonnie, the matriarch of the family, spent most of the day laid up in bed. The family didn't like how Capote portrayed her in his novel. He stated that she had problems with anxiety and depression and had been in and out of facilities for a lot of the recent years. That was the truth. Herb made it back home in time to meet his insurance agent in the late afternoon, where the two sat in his office and he purchased a life insurance policy that was worth $40,000 and would pay out double in cases of accidental death. Herb was a very healthy man and had nothing to worry about up to that point. He was just taking precautions. The family had dinner together and later that evening, Bobby Rupp came over and watched TV with the family and left around 11 p.m. He would say goodbye to his love, Nancy, for the last time. Let's bounce back to earlier in the day in Olathe Perry Smith sat drinking a coffee in a cafe named The Little Jewel. He was studying a Phillips 66 map of Mexico. He, like his friend Dick, was also a dreamer. Both shared an affinity for the 1948 film The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, directed by John Huston and starring Humphrey Bogart. Ironically, the movie is about two unemployed American drifters looking to strike it big and obtain for themselves the big score hunting for gold and buried treasure south of the border. In fact, the movie was one of the first major Hollywood productions up to that point to be shot on location outside the United States. It was filmed, for the most part, in the state of Durango. During the time that Perry had known Dick Hickok, their relationship was interesting to say the least. They were basically two braggarts, trying to constantly one-up each other with little to no real accomplishments to back up their claims. Around 8.45 a.m. on the 14th, Dick pulled up in a black 1949 Chevrolet sedan. Perry hopped in and looked in the back seat. There he saw a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, a flashlight, a fishing knife, a pair of leather gloves, and a hunting vest packed with shotgun shells. As they headed west across Kansas that morning, they commented to each other on how easy this all would be. A cinch, the perfect score, $10,000 for only a few hours of work. Dick even commented at one point in a cocky and grotesque manner, I promise you, honey, we'll blast hair all over them walls. 
Dick was currently living at home on the outskirts of Olathe and had snuck out that morning with the shotgun making sure that his dad didn't see him. His parents didn't know Perry well at all, so as an alibi, he told his parents that they were going to spend the rest of the day and that night at Perry's sister's house in Fort Scott, about an hour south of Olathe. Truth is, Perry did have a sister, but she didn't live in Fort Scott. He didn't even know where she lived. Dick was skinny, tall, and had blonde hair. Perry was short with darker skin. He was part Cherokee and he walked with a limp. He had been in a horrific motorcycle accident several years before that nearly took his life. It did take the full mobility from one of his legs. He had become an aspirin addict due to the pain. By mid-afternoon, the two had reached Emporia, Kansas in that black Chevrolet. A quick Google search shows that Emporia meant they were about one-third of the way to their destination. They stopped and bought a few more supplies. They bought a pair of gloves for Perry, as Dick already had a pair. Perry waved over a sales clerk and asked if they had any black stockings so they could cover their faces during the robbery. Dick quickly cut him off and said that face coverings were unnecessary as anyone they encountered wouldn't live to bear witness. Perry still was unsure and thought that they could complete the robbery without taking any lives. He once told Dick that he had killed a man in Vegas, just because he could. The claim was never really substantiated, but it gave Dick faith that Perry could see their plan through. Next, the two bought some rope. They didn't know for sure how many people would be home when they would break into the clutter house that night. Just to be safe, they bought an entire roll of rope. It was 100 yards long, enough for about 12 people. The two continued west for over 100 more miles, and by now a full moon was forming on the edge of the sky. They continued on and stopped in Garden City for gas. Now they were only about seven miles from the Clutter residence. They drove past the large Methodist church, newly built near Main Street. The two had been drinking off and on during the day. Dick was eating some candy. Seven miles away at River Valley Farm, the only of the four Clutters that was still awake was Nancy. She had written in her journal and was enjoying some alone time, thinking of Bobby. Her last journal entry finished with the words, Jolene Kay came over. I showed her how to make a cherry pie, practiced with Roxy, Bobby here, and we watched TV, left at 11. For a few days after the murders, Bobby was considered a suspect, as he was the last known person to see the family alive. But he was quickly cleared of the charges and not considered capable of doing such a horrific thing. Perry and Dick drove the six miles of highway between Garden City and Holcomb and turned left, crossing the train tracks for the Santa Fe Railroad. It was close to midnight and already Holcomb felt like a ghost town. They turned right, following the map drawn for them by Floyd Wells, and began to drive more slowly. They saw ahead of them the dirt lane lined with Chinese elms that Dick's cellmate had described from his time working there in the late 40s. They knew they had almost reached their destination. Dick turned the headlights off and the Chevrolet crept to the north. They could see the clutter house approaching in the moonlight. They stopped the car and turned it off when they knew they were still far enough away from the house for the family to not hear the engine. They both paused and looked at each other as if to ask, are we still doing this? They got out and opened the trunk and grabbed the long roll of rope. 
Perry grabbed the knife. They knew more or less the layout of the house from the descriptions that were given. The clutter's dog, Teddy, who was still likely on the property somewhere, didn't bark or make a sound. He was nowhere to be seen. They approached the outside door to Herb's office on the north end of the house. Perry reached down and tried the doorknob, and the door began to open. The main floor was dark, and they quickly searched the office with their flashlight, slightly hoping that the safe could be found and possibly carried out without waking anyone. There was no safe in sight. They continued on through the kitchen, and Perry cut the phone line. They made their way to the master bedroom and opened the door. Still using their flashlight, they shined it in Herb's eyes and woke him up. Startled and taken aback, Herb put on his glasses. They roughed him up a bit and asked him where the safe was. He kept saying that he didn't know what they were talking about. They took him into the office and made him search for the safe as they waited. Dick stayed with Herb as Perry kept watch to make sure no one came down the stairs and interrupted them. As Perry was looking up the stairs, he noticed there was a lamp on upstairs and someone quickly crossed the hall and closed a door. He went in and told Dick what had happened. It was then that they knew the night might not end without violence. Dick grabbed her by the arm and the three walked upstairs. They realized Nancy was still awake in her room. Herb asked the two to leave his family out of this and they could take what they wanted. They grabbed Nancy and woke up Kenyon and Bonnie and the family was ushered into the bathroom where they were tied up. Dick watched the family while Perry searched the rest of the house. He made a lot of noise with his limp as he went up and down the wooden stairs, back and forth, looking for any signs of a safe. He found nothing. Perry came back up and relayed the news that he couldn't find the safe so they should leave. Dick refused, and he looked for himself while Perry then watched the family. Dick came back again, this time with the gun, and he whispered to Perry that they could leave no witnesses. The family was then separated. Nancy was tied up in her room, Bonnie was tied up in hers. So they were the only two left upstairs. They ushered Kenyon and Herb down to the basement and tied up Herb in the furnace room while Kenyon was tied to a couch in the recreation room. A pillow was placed under his head. Three of the family members had their mouths taped shut. They left Nancy without taping hers. Perry stood in the furnace room looking at Herb as if to give him one last chance. He was still hoping Dick would give up and urge him to back out. He didn't. Perry was later quoted as saying that he thought well of Mr. Clutter. He said that he thought that Mr. Clutter was a very nice and gentle man. He thought so right up to the moment that he cut his throat. Perry couldn't stand the gurgling sound anymore, so he quickly grabbed the shotgun from Dick and shot Mr. Clutter, ending his life. The two went to the next room and shot Kenyon as well, also in the head. They scampered up the two flights of stairs and went into Nancy's room. She could be heard screaming as her mouth was not yet taped. They shot her as well and quickly went to the next room, shooting Bonnie before they left the house. On their way out, they took about $40 from Nancy's purse and dropped her purse on the kitchen floor. They stole Kenyon's radio and a pair of binoculars. These things are all they took from this exchange that cost four people their lives. Teddy the dog hadn't barked, hadn't alerted anyone. Alfred Stockline and his family, who lived less than 100 yards from the clutters, were asked about that night during the investigation. They didn't hear as much as a gun blast or a dog barking. 
In fact, they described the night as being peaceful. Perry and Dick drove back east to Olathe without stopping. They arrived shortly after sunrise and slept. They left the shotgun there. Their plan was to head to Mexico. They stayed in Mexico until about early December, only a few weeks. They ran out of what little money they had. Perry shipped a box from Mexico to Las Vegas as he knew they would be crossing the border again soon into the US. Dick sold Kenyon's radio in Mexico for some extra cash. The two headed north. They circled their way across the states, passing bad checks in Kansas City, stealing cars, hitchhiking, and even at one point spending a few days in Florida. The bodies of the two killers, Smith and Hickok, would be exhumed in December of 2012, nearly 48 years from the time they would be executed. In order to examine them as being possible suspects in the murders of Cliff and Christine Walker and their two young toddlers on December 19th, 1959 in Sarasota. As it turns out, Perry and Dick were both in that area during that time. But the results of the exhumation and examination of their DNA were inconclusive. They were then reburied at Mount Muncie Cemetery in Lansing, Kansas. To this day, I haven't cared to visit their graves. After Florida, they hitchhiked their way across the South and they stole a car and drove to the post office in Las Vegas to pick up the box that Perry had shipped to himself a few weeks prior. In that box were the same boots he had worn to the clutters that night they committed the murders. The same boots that left a print in Herb Clutter's blood on a cardboard box laid out on the floor in the furnace room that night in November. That footprint would be the main piece of physical evidence that would implicate them and lead to their conviction in the murders. Hickok and Smith also forgot that there was one person who nearly knew for certain that they committed the murders, Floyd Wells, who had given them directions to the house. Floyd gave them up for some ransom money and a lighter sentence on his prison term. Dick and Perry had been followed through Las Vegas as a police officer had noticed the plates on the stolen vehicle they were driving. Luckily, he didn't pull them over until they picked up the box with the boots in it from the post office. Alvin Dewey, the investigator with the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, whose grave I would visit decades later, was called to Las Vegas, where the two were interrogated and he knew for certain they were guilty. Truman Capote was in Garden City when the two killers were brought back, had their trial, and were convicted of killing the four clutters. He would also be present on April 14, 1965, exactly 100 years to the day from Lincoln being shot at Ford's Theater while watching My American Cousin, and he would watch as Smith and Hickok were hanged. As I said in the last episode about the ordeal of writing in cold blood, Capote was quoted as saying, It scraped me right down to the marrow of my bones. It nearly killed me. I think, in a way, it did kill me. Until one morning in mid-November of 1959, few Americans, in fact few Kansans, had ever heard of Holcomb. Like the waters of the river, like the motorists on the highway, and like the yellow trains streaking down the Santa Fe tracks, drama in the shape of exceptional happenings had never stopped there. Of all the people in all the world, the clutters were the least likely to be murdered.
I'm Chad Mortensen. Join me next time for Saints and Sinners, True Crime and the History of the West. Thank you.